This is a 980 CKNW podcast. How y'all doing tonight? Just spent the better part of the week in Nashville, Tennessee, and now I have a southern drawl. I love it. I loved Nashville. I, if you have a chance to go there, I highly recommend it. The people are incredible. Southern hospitality is alive every single minute of the day. I was there for the American Eurogyne Society and International Eurogyne Association meeting, which means below the belt for women. And I will be covering some of that or what I learned tonight on the Sunday Night Health Show. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health educator. Okay, time to put the kids to bed. Your health is your wealth. Keep that in mind always. The benefits of good health means your relationship and your sex life might even improve. Sex facilitates bonding and feelings of intimacy, which does more than make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. It actually boosts your overall health. If you have a question for me, feel free to email me at nurse talk at hotmail.com that's nurse talk n-u-r-s-e-t-a-l-k at hotmail.com remember this show is not a replacement for a visit to your medical doctor you heard me medical doctor for whatever ails you we have lots to talk about on the program tonight i have some phenomenal guests we're talking about uh sleep and your risk of cardiovascular disease uh, we are talking, and, and I do want to say uh, Happy Rosh Hashanah, Happy New Year to anybody celebrating that this evening as well. Um, we're going to be talking about perimenopause. We are going to be talking about emotion regulation. Seems like a lot of people have a problem with emotion regulation. Not Andrew, who's behind the boards tonight. He's a pretty steady Eddie guy. <laughs> He's back tonight. Uh, we're also going to be talking about hypertension and, and how that is related to your sleep as well and what are some of the signs and symptoms of that. And guess what? We're having less sex. Oh my gosh, my work. I still have a lot more work to do apparently on that. And uh, you know what? Because of that, lots of people are having open relationships. So we're going to be covering that a little bit later on in the program. So if you have a question for me, you can always call me 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. The lines are open. So we've got lots to cover tonight, but right now I want to talk about y'all. I want to talk about, I wish I had a Southern accent. Maureen's Health Headline. I really do wish I had a Southern accent, but I don't. And um, I've got a bad one that I'm faking. Anyway, some of you fake too. But right now I want to talk about the access to justice problem that we have here in this country. People are more likely to have a family law dispute than any other type of serious legal problem. Due to financial limitations, a reduced deference to lawyers and the justice system generally, increased access to legal information online and some other factors in some family courts, the number of self-represented litigants now reaches 80%, a staggering 80%, and is consistently 60 to 65%. Um, presently. And here in the studio to help make some sense of all of this is Nicole Garten. She is a lawyer at Heritage Law. And she's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but we're also going to talk about some of the amazing work that she is doing to increase access to justice, especially those mar- for those marginalized people. Good evening, Nicole. Thank you. Thanks for being here with me this evening. I really appreciate this. I was stunned 
uh, to learn um, about this access to justice issue. Now, I know that it has been an issue, and, and lawyers are expensive, and the court systems take a long time, um, but it's staggering that 80% um, people represent themselves. Well, in some courts, it is 80%, but it, you know, across the board, it's approximately 50% of people are actually going it alone, going into courts and trying to advocate for themselves. And the system isn't meant for lay litigants. Even the most savvy, uh, able person is going to have difficulty with the the systems that are meant for lawyers to navigate. And so it is a serious crisis and something that we need to address. And because don't lawyers have to go to school for that? And isn't a big education required, an extensive education? And I mean, I'm, is it, is it TV lost programs? Is that where people are getting, thinking that they're getting their legal experience? Well, I think there's a democratization of information. The internet is great. It's a leveler. Um, there is de- less deference to professionals. I think, you know, society is changing in many ways. That's actually a positive change, but the reality is, uh, you know, particularly in the greater Vancouver, the cost of living is very high. And people, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. And when they have a serious legal issue, a lot of them just just don't have the resources. There is some legal aid available, but BC remains one of the lowest funded legal aid jurisdictions in the country. And to qualify for legal aid, it, you know, you have to have very low thresholds of income and assets. And so the the middle class or a lot of working people, they they are uh, caught because they don't qualify for legal aid, but they often can't afford full hit legal services. So they're trying to do it themselves. And so they're going online. And is that is that what results in less deference to lawyers and other professionals, I might add? You know, I think this is an issue for uh, physicians as well as perhaps engineers, maybe architects too. Well, I think it is across the board. But I think, you know, the issue with legal services is it exacerbates inequalities that already exist. So the most vulnerable people, often women, new immigrants, uh, First Nations people, a lot of people that are the most disenfranchised and at risk are people that often will be faced with legal issues and really uh, do not have a lot of the time the resources uh, that they need. And and this will affect children as well in a a very negative way, I would imagine. And so what's the impact on families and and actually also on our systems, our healthcare systems, our economic systems? Well, that's an interesting question. So, you know, if there is a family law issue, a lot of people think, oh, that's a legal issue. But what it really is, is a social issue with a legal component. So if a family is going through breakup, that is, there are family issues, there's economic issues, there's health issues, and there's legal issues. And I think what would better serve the most vulnerable people or people going through difficult times would be a multidisciplinary uh, triage system where all those needs could be met. And I actually think if we front-loaded the system, in many ways, I think a lot of the long-term effects of unserved people would be, it would reduce stress on the system generally because unresolved family law issues ricochet into civil issues, bankruptcies, um, children that are acting out, you know, there's long-term ramifications of families that, whose needs aren't met. And, and oftentimes when couples are splitting, it can become extremely acrimonious and the person, correct me if I'm wrong, that has more money, i.e. more power, uh, may have an unhealthy power over the other person that they are, let's say, consciously uncoupling from. Um, and so this can result in some inequities as well. And and 
oftentimes parents don't think about the children uh, that are involved here and, and potentially, um, you know, children may need some psychological help um, and they, and people with more money may have more access to, you know, mediators and psychologists and tutors and, and whomever else counselors um, that their children need. Um, but oftentimes it's so, I would imagine so challenging for. So you're talking about if there's an inequity of resources in a couple, uh, but if if you know, it's often in our society still. It's often the male partner these days who generally, a lot of the times, will have more resources. But even if that was the case, there are interim applications. You can apply for spousal. You can apply for an advance on funds. Something I think that is uh, something that people don't realize is the stat is something like forty percent of Canadian marriages won't meet their 30th anniversary. But when you dive into that data, it's not across the board. So in fact, the vast majority of marriages that end, end very quickly, and they're younger people, people with less resources, people with less family and community support, people with less education. So stressed people without resources, and I mean resources globally, not just financially, those marriages fail quickly. And Families who have higher levels of education, even baseline amounts of uh, resources or income, it, you're actually a statistical anomaly to split. And so what happens is these you can get intergenerational stress. These families, that it becomes a ricochet of a cycle in that stressed families without resources then fracture, their needs aren't met, those kids are unserved, and then they become adults that are stressed and that cycle repeats. And so I think... As a society, we need to look at shoring up our resources in a multidisciplinary, front-loaded way to triage these families to try to get to the root of what's actually happening and give them more support. Right, and give them the best chance possible. Right. So you're doing some incredible work on the North Shore of Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, we're going to go to break right now. But um, we're going to talk about that work uh, when we get back. And this, I'm with Nicole Garten. She is a lawyer with Heritage Law. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program. My guest is Nicole Garten. She is a lawyer with Heritage Law. We're talking about access to justice and uh, the difficulties that we face here in Canada. If you're just uh, tuning in, thanks for staying in the studio, Nicole, and talking about this. Um, so you've decided uh, it's it's not so easy for people today to access legal services, and um, in part because of a lack of funds, the expensive areas where we live, um, how costly it is to raise a family, and and this particularly affects family law. So you've decided to uh, do what I think is just an incredibly gracious and honorable and generous um, thing, really. Uh, So tell me a little bit about North Shore Pro Bono. Thank you, Maureen. Well, I I just want to say, you know, the lawyers of British Columbia actually do thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of pro bono. And, you know, I think... I think a lot of people in the profession understand it's a great privilege and it's an honor to practice and actually take this very seriously. And, um, you know, this is one thing that we have started on the North Shore, but there are many, many organizations that exist to help people in our community. Another one that's uh, really successful is called Access Pro Bono, and they serve people all across British Columbia. So that's something people can look into if they're not on the North Shore um, 
not north or west Vancouver. And in other provinces as well, I'm certain that they do. I'm uh, sure they do in other provinces. So there is a huge commitment for lawyers. And I think, you know, another thing is that there's a perception, you know, maybe from TV that lawyers are fat cats and, you know, drive around in fancy cars. But in fact, the vast majority of lawyers, quite frankly, don't make, you know, as much money as you might think. And a lot of them are really in the trenches, working really hard, trying to serve people at difficult times of their lives. So I think, yes, it's a privilege and honor to practice law, but we are in the community serving people and and there are thousands and thousands of hours of done every year. So this is just one. Um, But I, I think, so family law is a great unserved area that ricochets through society. The other thing I just want to say with a pitch with the state law, so I practice wills in the states and family law, uh, the estimate is that half of Canadians actually have no will at all. <laughs> so it's really quite remarkable when you think about it. So even if you, like a public service announcement, even if you don't have a lot of assets, if you die or become disabled without basic documents in place, so a basic will, or if you're incapable, a power of attorney is for money and a representation agreement is for health care. If you don't have these basic documents, it's going to be very stressful and difficult for your family to assist you and work with your estate. So everybody should should uh, do what they can to get the basics in place. And it really doesn't have to be very expensive to do that. And, and does it have to be really fancy? Like this sort of last will and testament, we've seen that on television as well. Like, can people write down their um, wishes and sign and date it and notarize it? So uh, most people really need a basic will. So, you know, if you're in a... Um, a blended family, if you've got a disabled beneficiary, if you're First Nations, if you are a U.S. citizen, for example, there are scenarios that have more complexity and you should get advice. But for a lot of people, a bread and butter basic will is all they need and it's going to save their family an enormous amount of stress and hassle. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if you become incapable and there's no enduring power of attorney in place, nobody can pay your bills, nobody can file your tax Mm -hmm. return, it's really quite onerous and difficult. So uh, that's a pitch for everybody to get the okay. basics Okay, I'm American. I'm going back okay. out to the will. <laughs> Re- review the will. Yeah. Okay. Um, but North Shore Pro Bono is a relatively new um, society that I started with a colleague, Zara Janab. And we offer some pro bono services. And if it's okay with you, I'm just going to say what we offer. Sure. So on the second Friday of every month, for two families, we will offer a free family mediation. And so to qualify... You have to have a family income of 75000 or less, and you have to have 100000 less or less in assets, but that doesn't include pension incomes. And so if you fit that criteria, we will do two free family mediations on the second Friday of every month. Similarly, on the third Friday of every month, we do an estate plan for at 10 and 11 a.m. And to qualify, an individual has to have an income of 35000 or less. For a, a couple, it's 75000 or less, and again, 100000 or less in assets. And then we also have some free workshops. So on the fourth Friday of every month, we have something we call executor boot camp. So if somebody's passed away and you need help with an estate administration, we will help you from 10 till noon. And on the first Friday of every month, we have a free workshop called Represent Yourself in Court. You can bring your documents, and we will help you try to navigate the maze. And again, that is from 10 to noon. So what we did is that we have an infrastructure, we have an office. And so it's it hasn't been difficult for us to basically set aside time on Fridays to help people in our community that aren't served. And 
I just want to say something about the North Shore is that there's a perception that, you know, everyone there lives in a fancy house. That actually couldn't be further from the truth. The the stats are approximately 13% of people on the North Shore actually live at or below the poverty line. There's a lot of people that are our neighbors that are living right among us that actually um, are really struggling. And so this is meant for them, but also people that are working hard but still, you know, struggling to meet bills. So what we're trying to do is offer people basic family law services, basic estate services, and give them some information. I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I, I think all of those, uh, well, the workshops you offer are amazing because it will certainly give, potentially give somebody a leg up um, if they decide to be their own litigator in, in court. Um, no, I think it's awesome. And if you meet that those um, criteria, I th- certainly think you should contact Heritage Law. What's the best way to get in touch with you? You can call Nicole. us at 778-786-0615 and you will be picked up by the Heritage Law Reception, so don't be confused if <laughs> the reception says Heritage Law, but that's because we offer free services to North Shore Pro Right, Bono. of course. Well, thank you so much, Nicole, okay. and I'll thank put you. that on uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, so thanks very much for being in the studio. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you, for y'all. Hope you're having a good night. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Um, we're talking perimenopause. Uh, it's a natural transition in life, and it's the years leading up to uh, the menopause, which actually is a very, very, very brief time. Um, but joining me in the studio to make sense of perimenopause is Dr. Natalie Gamash, and she is a gynecologist at Crossroads Clinic in Vancouver, British Columbia, and she's come into the studio to talk to me about this. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your interest. You are very welcome. Well, this issue affects many women in many ways, um, many women in many ways. And, um, uh, we have lots of different symptoms. And so let's start there. What are some of the symptoms that women can have that are perimenopausal and when does it start? So it can start fairly early in Uh the late Uh thirties. Um, some women it'll be delayed a little bit, but it's not unusual for late thirties women to basically notice that they're starting to have PMS again, like they were teenagers. Um, it can pre present basically with changes in their moods. Uh, it may have been stable for decades and all of a sudden they're not recognizing themselves. They're suffering from anxiety on awakening in the morning, feeling a loss of control. They're being moody, tearful, angry, upset at nothing, few days to a week before their periods, they're going to start having symptoms of insomnia in those days as well, um, and perhaps some night sweats later on. And that's usually the beginning of the presentation, can actually occur even before periods are going to start to vary as we expect them to become and they're late in their 40s, let's say. Okay. So those would be the initial symptoms. Okay. And that can start as early as age 37. And so you may have just gotten together with somebody at Absolutely. 34 and, and the then 37, is on. they're moody. <laughs> moody and miserable. And nobody warned you about it. <laughs> okay, no wonder where <laughs> there's issues in marriages. You uh, bet. Yeah, that can be a shocker. And, and so for the men that are listening out there tonight, um, you know, this can be a bit of a surprise uh, hey. that all of a sudden their loving wife or, um, or, or, or for a partner, um, their loving spouse, their loving partner, all of a sudden 
isn't sleeping, is moody and miserable and irritable, and you know it might um, lead somebody to, if they're impulsive, off to divorce court. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or non-married court, anyway. Um, I think that a lot of women actually don't recognize the symptoms themselves. They're very at a loss to explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. They will very seldom reach out for help because they don't understand what's happening. They're having a bad day at work and they're basically discounting what's happening until it becomes a pattern. Very, very, very commonly, the children and the partners and the co-workers will start noticing these changes and it's a matter of noticing that they're actually cyclic. Mm-hmm. And how about uh, vulvovaginal dryness? Um, can that, what, what age can that start in women? That's usually deferred until much later when the estrogen drops and they're late 40s and closer to menopause, uh, we often see women who will maintain vulvovaginal health until a few years after menopause, until all hell uh, breaks loose. I usually uh, make the analogy of juicy grapes that turn into raisins down there, but uh, very uncommonly will, will it happen to women in their early perimenopause. If my patients are noticing this or if somebody brings it to our attention, they definitely deserve an exam just because infections down there and other vulvar issues can arise at that time, and it's very important to rule them out. And, and women are at greater risk for urinary tract infection. Absolutely. As well. Yes. And yes. women, there are home tests for women to do um, uh, now in Canada. Yes, um, they can. They can dip their own uh, urine so they don't have to go off to the doctor's office. But, but I don't think a lot of women associate the reduction in estrogen in their uh, vagina, in the urogenital tract. Uh, with bladder infections. And a shocker as well is also the the reduction in testosterone. So we also make very little as women, right. but we have a significant drop in perimenopause and it can affect uh, very, very significantly the vulvovaginal health as well as sexual desire, mood, uh, memory concentration and so on. Orgasm, but Absolutely. what do I care? I know. Um, <laughs> of course you care. If you care. have a question for the doctor... Um, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight about uh, perimenopause or hormones or the types of treatment. Now, the treatment I want to mention for vulvovaginal health is, uh, I'll ask you, the treatment that you typically recommend um, for women who are having vaginal dryness or vulva dryness or... Um, you, do you recommend personal moisturizers? And I actually would like to toss a stick of dynamite to that aisle in the pharmacy oh. and the general stores. Mm-hmm. So um, they do themselves a lot of damage by usually um, starting to use over-the-counter products that are very perfumed, mm-hmm. uh, very harsh, very alcohol-based, and so on. And these women are often desperate and very embarrassed to bring these issues to their doctors or their primary health care person. Um, So as I mentioned, they deserve uh, an examination to rule out infections first Mm -hmm. and other entities. Um, If they do suffer from dryness, they can certainly initiate way before menopause a local estrogen product Mm -hmm. that would be... um, 
uh, on a prescription basis. There are some moisturizers that are basically neutral out there that are not perfumed, that are basically right. designed over the counter uh, for moisturizing the area. And they're um, okay. And they're perfectly yes, okay. Absolutely. Yes. I was, but anything I was with perfume referring or mostly yeah. to things that are alcohol-based and perfumed that, that are being sold for that purpose. Right. And I think, um, I, I hear a lot of women who will say they have vaginal dryness, but they use a lubricant during sex. And I say, well, why don't you try a personal moisturizer, you know, three, four times a week, and then you won't have to use that lubricant. You may not have to use that lubricant during sex or um, the localized estrogen therapy in the form of the cream or the ring, um, because I find the tablet form is too low of a dose Absolutely. Um, for most women. And the vulva um, is not treated. And the vulva needs to be treated as well. Absolutely. And you tissue. raise a good issue. It's not just the lower dose that we can accommodate by doing it more frequently. It's mostly the fact that it doesn't reach the labia, the introitus, the opening of the vagina and the vulva, where those tissues are actually in need of great moisturizing and in kind of a revamp of the hormones that they're losing along the way. That's so right. Definitely. And that's best done with um, the cream. Yes. And again, I think there's a lot of lack of education. A lot of women are still completely concerned and scared about the risk of breast cancer and so on. So just to make absolutely certain that everybody understands that there are absolutely no restrictions and limitations to anybody who owns a vagina to using local estrogen or uh, these products over the counter that are moisturizing. Right. So they're completely safe. And may I just say that only women can own vaginas. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I that, uh, meaning, <laughs> a, a, or, you know, uh, a man does not, your, your partner doesn't own your vagina, is, was my... Thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I will support that premise. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I had a patient who, I know, she had tremendous deference for her physician and her physician, and she was about um, probably 58 to 60, and her physician had prescribed the localized tablet for her, and she started getting recurrent urinary tract infections. And so I suggested that she go back and speak to her doctor about using a cream um, or the ring. And she, instead of doing that, at that point, she decided to read the product monograph, which does say this will cause, because it's estrogen, and they, the product monograph is actually incorrect. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, in terms of the product monograph actually says on it, on the, on the localized estrogens, if ladies, if you have that prescription, it will say estrogen can cause breast cancer and increased cardiovascular. Oh, absolutely. I see what you're getting yeah, at. Yeah. So there's a blanket statement on these monographs that basically include all hormonal products in Canada and for the FDA in the United States. They do not differentiate per product what the risk factors and the adverse effects are. Right. So if you're reading the small print on that monograph, and you should, uh, it, it will scare a lot of women when, as a matter of fact, that should absolutely be removed from yes. the monograph from of the, local estrogen For the localized products. estrogen, yeah, absolutely. the one you're going to put on your vagina, in your vagina and on your vulva. Um, so this patient uh, carried on, and she went back to her uh, gynecologist, and the gynecologist said to her, well, this particular tablet, which has been 
um, cut in half. The dosage is more than, more than cut in yes. half. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so it's like 30% of what it used to be. Um, so the doctor said, well, actually, and she'd gotten three recurrent, three urinary tract infections by that stage. And her gynecologist said, um, well, um, it's low dose and it has been tested for um, treatment of genital urinary syndrome of menopause, what we used to call vaginal atrophy. And so she came back to me and I said, um, well, did the doctor mention that those tests were done, those studies were done by the, the company themselves, mm-hmm. <laughs> the yes, pharmaceutical company. They, so they're a bit biased there. And, and the patient said, no, she didn't actually say that. Not, you know, keeping in mind that this woman is continually getting uh, recurrent urinary tract infection. So for somebody like her, would you suggest to switch to the cream? Uh, I would like to validate that she does have bladder infections. Very commonly, they'll have some irritation down there without actually having yeah, a bladder did. infection. She did have bladder infection. She, she needed yes. antibiotic therapy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I would, I would certainly make sure that the tissues are have regained their integrity, which very commonly with the little tablet of Vagifem that has been reduced by 20, more than 50% or mm-hmm. more, uh, will actually need to be applied more frequently. It's an expensive product, unfortunately, and the cream usually works better because you can apply it at the introitus. Exactly. You make a good point. It's less expensive as well. Yes. And so yes. interested yes. in saving money. Not. So we're, we've talked about a lot of the symptoms. I'm going to ask you to stay in the studio and we're going to talk about what women can do for their perimenopausal um, issues and also then talk a little bit about systemic estrogen therapy for those night sweats and hot flashes that you might be having. And if you have any questions, you can always email me nursetalk at hotmail.com. I'm Maureen McGrath and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Okay. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Dr. Natalie Gamash is my guest. She is a gynecologist at Crossroads Clinic in Vancouver, British Columbia, way out there on the West Coast. Some say the best coast on the left coast. (laughs) Thanks so much for staying in the studio. So estrogen gets a bad rap. The Women's Health Initiative had something to do with that, I guess. Um, So tell me, when is the appropriate uh, time? When would a woman um, seek uh, treatment uh, for her menopausal symptoms, um, and at you know at what point? Initially, I wish they would seek help and understanding and and assistance from a caregiver, a medical caregiver, from the moment they start having significant symptoms that are basically impacting on their daily lives. Uh, whether they need hormone therapy at that time or not is is the question. It's to be evaluated, and it's to be evaluated independently. Everybody, and I think that's part of the frustration, is there are no textbooks for perimenopause and menopause. Everybody's going to live it completely different and compare and contrast. And and it confuses doctors who have received very, very little uh, education on that topic. So the time to start hormone therapy is basically as soon as the symptoms that are pertaining to perimenopause or menopause um, are affecting daily lives and preventing women from having a quality of life that are allowing them to enjoy and function appropriately. And so would you say that some women aren't being treated soon enough, perhaps, or uh, women suffering uh, through perimenopause? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an understanding or I think that there's a guideline and a protocol that a 
makes it apparent that hormone therapy should only be starting at the moment where menopause has been reached, which is a year without periods. Um, at that point, most women have suffered the most they will suffer already. So menopause is fairly easy. And I certainly don't want mm -hmm. to undermine the women out there who are suffering tremendously. And there, there are some. But as soon as menopause has been reached, hormone levels are at their lowest and they're stable at their lowest. So it's easy to manipulate with hormone therapy and safely. It's the roller coaster that happens the five or 10 years before that that is very difficult to tolerate and very difficult to monitor and manage as well. But that's usually when women need the hormone therapy the most. Right. And so is this a conversation um, for a woman and her physician? And the, is every woman different in perimenopause? And I think that leads to the confusion. So physicians are generally not comfortable because they lack the information that's not been provided to them in their medic medical education. Mm -hmm. And on top of which, women are showing in all sorts of, you know, varieties of presentations. Uh, and it's very easy to confuse the insomnia and the mood issues with depression and the hot flushes and the night sweats and, and the anxiety um, are, are known entities in menopause. So very commonly they'll be approached because there's a misunderstanding that you certainly at 38 or 44 could not be in menopause. And those symptoms have to be acknowledged by something, some other entity. So, And so may women be diagnosed with depression, for example, erroneously during the perimenopausal years? So the rate of depression in perimenopause is actually five to six fold higher than at any other time in a woman's life, independent of their background history. So depression is prominent, but it's a depression that is caused by the changes in the hormones and is very, very adequately treated by hormone therapy. Yeah, and, yeah I was going to say, and therefore the treatment is Absolutely. not necessarily an antidepressant, but it is a hormone therapy. So what are some of the risks of uh, hormone therapy, of systemic estrogen? And before I ask you that, I, I don't want to forget to ask, estrogen and progesterone, who are the women that need the progesterone? Absolutely. So the the state of affair basically is that as we approach and enter perimenopause, it's basically a failure of the eggs. And I'd like to mention that our eggs are basically our age. So we were born with a lot of them and we basically expire them month by month as we grow up. Um, so it has a tendency to be the progesterone that is actually going to become deficient primarily as the estrogen where the brain is forcing the ovary to respond appropriately will actually objectively increase in perimenopause. So we end up with a complete imbalance and the progesterone has been recognized to be responsible for mood, anxiety, sleep and night sweats as the estrogen will, its deficiency will present a little bit later with the hot flushes, the joint pain, the vaginal, right. the vulvovaginal issues. I'm glad you mentioned joint pain because a lot of women complain Absolutely. of that and they don't associate that with um, estrogen. Women without a uterus, do they need progesterone? Well, if we turn to Europe, women with a without a uterus actually are getting progesterone yeah. because they have a brain and they have a center in their brain that's intimately attached to progesterone. Yes, and so I, I've seen that as well. 
um, uh, and some of the risks of estrogen. We've got about a minute left. Well, given orally for some women who have risk factors for heart disease, for strokes, women who are smokers, women who have metabolic syndrome, including hypertension, cholesterol issues, cardiac risk factors, mm-hmm. um, they should definitely and they do they are a candidate for estrogen, but it should be passed transdermally, so patches and gels instead of pills. The progesterone, there's a couple of things on the market that are actually of great profile for breast tissue and are completely safe. So that's excellent information. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Natalie Gamash. You are so welcome, Gynecologist. You can always email me and I'll forward those emails on to uh, Dr. Gamash if you have any questions at all. Right now, I want to talk about chronic pain and trauma patients because this is so prevalent in our world today. Many, many people suffer. It affects your work life, your home life, your relationships, your mood. It affects so much. And so this is why I'm delighted to have on the line with me, Mihail Mamishvili, joining me to talk about the Neuropath Reset Method for working with chronic pain and trauma patients. He is the creator of this. Good evening, Mihail. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for the invite. It's an honor. Oh, thank you. The The honor is all mine. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing the information that you have, which I'm very interested to learn more about, I must admit, because I see a lot of patients who suffer with chronic pain. And so tell me about the Neuropath Reset Method that you have developed for patients yeah. with chronic pain and trauma. Well, I've been working with chronic pain and trauma for the last 20 years. Being myself a chronic pain uh, sufferer uh, and a trauma sufferer in the past led me to this path of being a therapist. And so I know it quite well firsthand. And after working for 20 years with chronic pain patients and trauma patients, which I really call, uh, you know, uh, it's the silent epidemic in this country. There's so many people that are suffering from chronic pain and the effects of traumatic events and what I've seen over the last 20 years of working with patients like that is a lot of patients end up spending a lot of time and a lot of resources trying to fix their pain, trying to fix the effects of the traumatic events that they've experienced, and ending up doing what I call the circuit and go, going from one practitioner to another practitioner and not coming to a point of, of resolving anything. If anything, it gets more confusing. And, and it's led to the opioid crisis in this country, and dare I say, self-medication in other ways as well, mainly That's alcohol, right. pot, right. uh, to no well, avail. People, people get desperate after a while, and they'll do anything. Yes. Right? Uh, what I love uh, seeing when I work one-on-one with patients is when you give patients a tool and they start to assume the responsibility Uh, to their pain, to their suffering, to start exercising those tools and and seeing the effects of that on the person, the confidence that comes in, uh, the self-realization, the the self-awareness that happens with with giving those people the tools. That's what prompted me to create Neuropath Reset. And Neuropath Reset is really truly a mind-body therapy that brings uh, the patient into awareness with, with reconnecting themselves and their own bodies. Uh, Neuropath Reset is, is a, a, really a combination of three tools 
that helps people regulate their own dysregulated nervous system, help people identify their chronic patterns in the body, and gives people access and tools to start to change that. And it's quite empowering. I've been uh, holding groups since last year, and it's been quite encouraging to see uh, how people, when they're really given the right tools, they can really start to create their own change. And at the end of the day, that's what people want. They need the tools. They crave those tools. And when they exercise those tools and they see the proof and the, 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 the measurements that come with those proof, the 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 empowerment that comes with that, the confidence that comes with that, that gives me so much uh, satisfaction and so much uh, more of a motivation to keep on uh, spreading the word and and uh, sharing the tools that I've uh, learned. Now, I will say you are a master shiatsu therapist. You are a body-mind coach and a teacher. And so um, can you work or just... Describe what these steps are, uh, what these tools are that you say um, for people to utilize or to learn and to utilize? Sure. Yeah, Neuropath Reset is made out of three tools. The three tools uh, uh, are there to create uh, a really an effect on the nervous system where by the end of a series of, uh, of uh, movements and, and stimulation on the body, uh, the person starts to feel uh, much more relaxed, much more energized. The first tool. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, sorry. I thought I lost you. No. The first tool is, re- is really uh, a series of movements that uh, introduce uh, ease and, and, and a relaxing effect on the neuromuscular pathways of the body. So a lot of people that are in chronic pain or people that are suffering from the effects of trauma have, have a hypersensitive nervous system and and also uh, quite a bit of pain and discomfort. And the last thing that <clears throat> the nervous system acknowledges is ease of movement and a sense of uh, even uh, joy and pleasure. So the series of movements that I create in the first method introduce the concepts of moving towards ease and even pleasure. And when you do that methodically from the feet up, uh, a wonderful thing happens, and that is the body really truly relaxes, and it shows up in the alignment of the body and in the muscular skeletal system. So a lot of the chronic uh, pain or the chronic stiffness that happens in, in, in chronic patients all of a sudden starts to reverse to the amazement of the patient. The patient themselves elicit the movements, and they again, quite gentle. They don't elicit any pain or any discomfort, but they create quite an effect on the nervous system. <clears throat> the second tool is once those movements have been done, is working with the viscera of the body. The viscera is the layer that protects your vitals, your organs. <clears throat> and a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the traumas or the, the pains that they've experienced reside in the viscera. 
and it's very hard to access because the nervous system is <clears throat> really protects the viscera also. Once the nervous system relaxes, the viscera is, can be easily accessed. So I teach the people how to access their own viscera in a way that is gentle again and creates a lot of awareness where they might be storing emotions, where they might be storing some of their trauma, some of their memories. And once you recognize where that is in the viscera, how to start to release that very gently. And it's amazing. Every time I do this, I'm always amazed at what happens. People start to remember things they've forgotten. People start to break down or release stored emotions. People start sometimes to giggle without knowing why they're giggling. People start to realize things they couldn't realize before. And it's it's a really powerful <clears throat> uh, experience for someone not not ever not ever being able to experience something like that before. Once they've released from the body, I introduced the third tool. The third tool is again when we are in a chronic state, we feel quite weak. We are depleted. We are hypersensitive. <clears throat> Therefore, we tend to isolate or numb ourselves. And we lose resiliency. So the third tool is a breath work that introduces resiliency into the nervous system. It's a really powerful breath work. <clears throat> it's a breath work that stimulates your vascular system. So all of a sudden, once people exercise this breath work, they can really notice <clears throat> blood flow flowing in areas that haven't, <clears throat> that haven't experienced that kind of blood flow before. So people feel that in their feet, on their arms. It's a really powerful experience. People really start to get in touch with that power. And uh, and it really is an exercise in introducing resiliency into the body. So those are the three methods that make up the neuropath reset. Again, the first method is a gentle set of movements to create an effect on the autonomic nervous system. And the second method is visceral manipulation done again in a gentle way but a, yet a powerful way and the third method is a breathwork method that introduces resiliency and strength both into the nervous system and the vascular system now you're recognized by alternative as well as conventional health agencies like cardiac rehab centers the diabetes association cancer societies um you know, is this something that people come to you and learn and then go away with and practice this at home? How, how does this actually work? That's right. They come to uh, a class set up. It's a group class set up. They, they usually work one-on-one -on -one with me, but I also uh, introduce them to the class set up. It's a weekly class, and it's a group class, and it's all experiencing these three methods that make up the neuropath reset method. So it's quite practical. They have a week in between classes to practice each method. So by the time they come to the next class, they're quite well versed. I make sure that they keep notes. I make sure that they measure things. I make sure that I'm in touch with them in between the classes. So when they come to the next class, they're quite prepared to move into the next method. So the first three classes are introduced in each method, 
And the last two classes are classes that weave each method together. So we weave one method into another method to create the effect of those three methods put together. Now, I know you've helped people with frozen shoulder. Um, A lot of people have chronic back pain. Does this work for chronic back pain? Then we got to wrap it up. (laughs) Yeah, it it works for chronic back pain. It works for frozen shoulders, chronic digestion problems, PTSD, anxiety, uh, blood pressure. Uh, It works for a lot of conditions. Awesome. We're going to be talking about blood pressure very shortly. Michal Mamishvili, how do people get in touch with you? Well, you can find me on social media, uh, Facebook group at Angel Hands Integrative, or you can go to my website at angelhands.ca, where you can find the classes also. Or you can find me on Eventbrite. uh, If you just punch in Neuropath Reset, you'll find me there too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you, Maureen. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.